Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. As the United States began the project of mass incarceration, rural communities turned to building prisons as a strategy for economic development. More than 350 prisons have been built in the U.S. since 1980, with certain regions of the country accounting for large shears of this dramatic growth. Central Appalachia is one such region. In Coal Cage's Crisis, The Rise of Prison Economy in Central Appalachia, published by New York University Press in 2022, Judah Shep takes a closer look at this stunning phenomenon, providing insight into prison growth, jail expansion, and rising incarceration rates in America's heartlands. Judah Shep is Professor of Justice Studies at Eastern Kentucky University. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Judah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat. So to get started, could you please tell us about your background and what led you to write this work? Yeah, of course. So I have a PhD in criminal justice from Indiana University. Um I'd gotten interested, generally speaking, in what we call mass incarceration in the United States, or we have some other terms for it, which it might be helpful to unpack at some point. Um, I'd gotten interested in those issues years before I had been in graduate school when I was in college in upstate New York and had the fortune to participate in in a program that brought college students inside prisons to learn with and from people who were incarcerated. Um, That experience is really profound and transformational for me and eventually brought me back to to sort of study the issues that had been introduced to me by that program in more depth in graduate school. After I finished that PhD in criminal justice, I was fortunate to get a job in what's called a School of Justice Studies at Eastern Kentucky University. And I arrived here in 2011, and uh, yeah, soon after arriving, had uh, some, you know, had sort of uh, acquired some sense of these issues in Eastern Kentucky, namely the construction of just many, many prisons there over the preceding decades, and began this project uh, that eventually led to the book. Right. Okay. So how many prisons are there in Appalachia and when were they built? So there are, I should say that Appalachia is a really large region that goes from, you know, the far Northeast to the deep South within which there are several sub regions. The sub region called central Appalachia is the sub region that I examined for the book and which has a considerable number of prisons in it. Uh, that subregion includes Eastern Kentucky, parts of West Virginia and Southwestern Virginia, and then Eastern Tennessee. 
And so in that subregion of central Appalachia, there are 16 prisons total, half of which are in eastern Kentucky. So there are eight prisons in eastern Kentucky. And during the time that I was sort of actively researching and writing the book, um, there were plans to build what would have been the newest and ninth prison in Eastern Kentucky alone um, that the book kind of documents. Most of those 16 prisons total, including the eight in Eastern Kentucky, were built over the last 30 to 40 years, really the 1990s and early 2000s. Right. During so the are... period that we sort of call mass incarceration. Yeah. Right. Right. So these are, are, are fairly recent um, constructions and, and developments um, in, um, of these prisons in, the, in this region that you're looking at. That's right. Fairly recent. All right. And you describe early on in the book how you tried to take a picture of one prison, a Little Sandy Correctional Complex in eastern Kentucky. Uh, who stopped you and why? <laughs> yeah. So it was, it might've been our very first, and I, I should say that I um, worked very closely with a photographer for this project. I, I was really interested in kind of documenting a, a visual story to accompany the larger story that I was trying to tell. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into this in the interview, but many of the prisons in the region are built adjacent to, and even at times on top of old and decommissioned coal mines, including the flattened plains left following this particularly sort of violent extraction process known as mountaintop removal. So on what might have been our very first trip, we were, my um, colleague and photographer friend, Jill Frank and I, had pulled over, um, like you said, in front of Little Sandy Correctional Complex in eastern Kentucky to take a few photographs. And uh, we, Jill takes long form photos, or she did at that point in, in the research, and we'd pulled over and begun unpacking her photography equipment. And behind us pulled up a, a truck and out of which stepped a correctional officer from the prison across the street, who was perfectly friendly, but, but pretty curt and got right to the point and told us pretty directly that there was no photography allowed. And if we were to take any photographs of the prison, he would not only confiscate our equipment, but be forced to call the police. Um, and, you know, potentially we, we'd be arrested because evidently that was, that was illegal. And in fact, he, he pointed um, in both directions down the road that we were parked on uh, and pointed to signs in the distance that said no photography between these two points. And those signs were on, you know, far on either end of the, of the prison's uh, perimeter. And so there was, it was just such an interesting um, experience in a way to recognize, you know, that your ability to see these places is really limited by the, in this case, you know, by the state, um, you can't stop and really see the prison. You certainly can't document it in a particular way. And that experience for me as somebody who doesn't, isn't sort of trained to think in those terms, that is to think about sort of the visual, um, that was really, that changed something for me, uh, in terms of how I thought about the project, you know, it raised certain questions. Like, what does it mean if, if I can't look, look at a prison, um, and I have to sort of think 
or can only look at what it's next to, what it's adjacent to, what it's in relationship to. And, and that was this sort of like pivotal experiential and analytical moment for me, I think. Yeah. I was really moved by by your description of that episode because uh, I spent two years after graduate school teaching uh, college courses in New Jersey state prisons. And I was struck by two things about the physical location of prisons. The first one was that many of the prisons that I uh, I would teach in, they were actually very close to um, – you know, um, bustling uh, areas. You know, there was a, 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 a mall sort of across the street from the prison, and yet the prison in some ways was kind of um, um, uh, uh, um, uh, separated from the, sur- the, the surrounding area. So basically there was a little sign that said, hey, here's a prison, and basically you needed to make a turn and go down this very long um, you know, driveway till you actually reached the prison complex. So if you're looking from the outside, uh, you, you don't see anything. I mean, the prison is basically invisible, you know, even though it's really just, I mean, I don't know, a couple hundred uh, yards from a shopping mall and, and stores and, and all this stuff. But at the same time, it's somehow very uh, separated and detached from the surrounding area. So you, I, I could imagine that there are people who work or live right next to the prison who don't even realize that there's a prison right near them, you know, because it's so separated in some ways and kind of hidden behind, you know, tall trees and, and long um, winding paths that, that, that keep the outsiders and the people who are, quote unquote, not supposed to be looking or seeing or thinking about the prison from doing so exactly and that's a really interesting tension you know because as you noted in your intro to our interview you know we the united states is the largest incarcerator in the world we have 2.3 million people in prisons and jails and we account for something like 22 percent of the world's incarcerated population so these are very much present institutions in our lives um and yet often not always but often those institutions are are built and positioned in ways that um have some amount of deniability maybe you know that keep them from at least being subject to a more democratized view uh or reach um the other thing I would introduce to that tension is just that, at least in some places, I'm not sure about New Jersey where where you were describing, but certainly in eastern Kentucky, um, even as they're, you know, situated in these particularly remote areas, even remote within eastern Kentucky, they figure really heavily in um, official attempts at and narratives of economic development, like they're very present, you know, um, for the people who want to see them built, um, like you said, as a sort of strategy for, for development. So yeah, so it's just a really interesting tension to, to think through. Yeah, and we're going to get to some of what you were just uh, kind of hinting at, the public presence of the prisons and the rhetoric around it. Uh, hopefully, we're, we're going to get to some of that uh, shortly. But to, to, to get started, to set the stage a little more, you talk about this idea of carceral social reproduction. What does that mean? 
Great. Yeah. Carceral social reproduction is um, really just a fancy way of saying, of noting the importance of the prison to the ways that communities and individuals within those communities and households and whatnot try to plan for and um, guarantee a future for themselves and their communities, right? Social reproduction is this um, super useful, really fantastic concept that um, a lot of scholars, particularly Marxist feminists, have developed to help us think about like the um, work and uh, life that occurs outside of the workplace, but which is crucial to it. So to make that a little bit more concrete, what I was seeing in Eastern Kentucky and elsewhere in Central Appalachia during my time there was um, the way that the prison was, of course, often um, narrated through and marketed through appeals to the jobs that it would bring to the region, but by no means was it exclusive to that. Often, when you when you looked a little bit deeper, people imagined the prison as also guaranteeing the viability of like healthcare clinics and schools and um, community centers, and just sort of more broadly the ability of people to make a life for themselves in a region that's seen obviously sort of dramatic population decline and lots of economic struggle following the decline of the coal industry. I should also say, uh, and this plays a pretty important role in the book, that this other element of carceral social reproduction is the way that the prison um, becomes crucial to all kinds of very kind of mundane infrastructure upgrades and developments such that communities literally might not be able to like extend water lines to particularly remote parts of a county or um, renovate dilapidated water infrastructure or wastewater treatment plants, but for the ability to attach applications for grant money to do those things, to the promise or presence of a prison. So the prison as a development project allows for communities to literally just be able to like build roads or extend water lines to a couple hundred people in a particularly remote area of the county. So in all those ways, the prison is positioned as not just a jobs program, although it's positioned as that, but also as really crucial to like what we call the social reproduction, to the ability of of communities to sort of see a future for themselves. Right, right. And um, you talk about racial capitalism. What is racial capitalism and how is it relevant to understand a region, Appalachia, uh, which is largely white? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. This took a lot for me to really think through. I had to do just a lot of reading as we all should. Um, and, and a lot of thinking of thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, to quote, um, well, I should say, first of all, right. Racial capitalism is not the way that scholars like Cedric Robinson, Ruth Wilson, Gilmore, Robin DG Kelly, to name a few who have done some of the heaviest lifting for developing the concept, um, 
racial capitalism in their view is not a um uh not like a um a form of or or category of capitalism it's all capitalism it's just we attach racial ahead of capitalism to insist upon the role of racialization in kind of underwriting capitalism, in granting it credibility, in guaranteeing its ability to uh, exploit or expropriate. And as a lot of these historians that I've mentioned and others have noted, Rate the role of racialization, I think in the United States context, particularly in regard to something like mass incarceration, we immediately think of people of color, perhaps in particular black Americans. And there's there's good reason for that, right? Mass incarceration has ensnared and targeted black and brown communities um, from day one. But racial capitalism seems particularly important to insist upon as an as an analytic when also thinking about people we regard as white generally and certainly with respect to mass incarceration for a couple of reasons. Um, Eastern, as people, as listeners, at least in the United States might know, Appalachia has been the subject of lots and lots of forms of cultural representation for about 160 years, right? Starting in the late 19th century, uh, a form of writing um, really almost invented Appalachia as a region through a, through um, invoking a kind of difference and deficiency of both the residents of the region and the topography itself. It sort of conflated the two. And it did so in language and terminology that began this 160-year-long process of really racializing a different kind of white people, right? So terms that listeners might be familiar with that are really derogatory in a way, right? Like redneck, or they're often deployed in derogatory ways. So there's some people who are really trying to reclaim them. But terms like redneck or white trash are terms that inherently sort of try and racialize or create a hierarchy within the category of whiteness. And so that it, it, in that way, people in Appalachia themselves have often been subjected to a kind of racialization that then I think historically has underwritten the credibility of their own exploitation or expropriation. So that's one reason why it seemed important to insist on racial capitalism. The other, of course, is that in, in the context of my particular project, mostly white communities in Appalachia, and I should just pause for a second and note that Appalachia is a very multiracial space. There are plenty of subregions within Appalachia that are not exclusively white by any stretch, right? There's lots of people of color in Appalachia. And even in the places in Appalachia, like in central Appalachia, where I was working, that do have largely, if not almost exclusively white communities, that's not some primordial feature of the region. That's, of course, because of all kinds of historical processes that pushed lots of folks out, indigenous folks, other people of color, et cetera. We can talk about that if that's important. The point for, just to, to bring it back to your question, 
is that in these places that I was working in Eastern Kentucky and in other places in central Appalachia that are largely white, if not almost exclusively white, I mean, we're talking like upwards of upper 90% of the population being white, that now house a prison, you do have this dynamic of white people who at one time would have been trained to be something like coal miners. In this case, in the 2000s now, in the 1990s, being educated to be and trained to be and positioned as correctional officers to, uh, you know, essentially be sort of deployed uh, as, as, as guards in a prison to guard a largely poor and certainly uh, poor population that's um, largely people of color. And in some of the work on racial capitalism, there's really important um, important work that that gets at the the work of racial capitalism to sort of distinguish and differentiate between. Sorry, I should say that differently. Work on racial capitalism has noted the importance of racialization itself to distinguish between people who otherwise share a whole lot in common under capitalism in terms of their class position, right? One in particular, one scholar in particular, Jody Malamed, notes that, um, oh, you know what? I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to butcher the quote, actually, because I don't have the book open in front of me. So I'm not going to even say it. Just the point being that <laughs> that um, that uh, that racial capitalism seemed particularly crucial to invoke and analyze as it works in eastern Kentucky and elsewhere in central Appalachia to prepare once and would be coal miners, you know, and people who could have been any number of other things as correctional officers, right? To be essentially foot soldiers in one of the central institutional sites of racialized class war in the United States. All right. So just uh, to 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 summarize if i may it what what i'm hearing you say is that that when you talk about uh racial capitalism in the context of your book uh there's there's two points that really come through the first one is that even if the people that you're speaking about whether they're the correctional officers in the prisons or they're the people who are incarcerated there even if they appear to be quote unquote white they're actually often part of uh, a white population that has historically and continues to be uh, viewed as somehow less than other white people. So in other words, even within the category of white people, there's kind of levels. There's the quote unquote regular white people. And then there's these uh, subcategories like people in Appalachia, which are viewed as somehow less than other white people because of where they live, because of their education, and so on. Um, and then you're also saying, just on a more straightforward level, uh, some of the people who are, or a good number of the people who are incarcerated in these prisons are actually people of color. So the issue of race comes up very directly when thinking about them as well. 
That's exactly right. And that we can't so easily abstract race out of capitalism or that race and class aren't necessarily these separate variables as lots of scholars and other people like to sort of abstract them into, right? That these processes are fundamentally, they fundamentally sort of constitute one another and historically just as you've described, right, those processes of racialization were really foundational to and even constitutive of capitalism. And that's what it seems to me is also happening in Appalachia. Right. And I just uh, want to uh, mention that you note um, in your book that some contemporary authors uh, base their portrayal of uh, Appalachia as um uh, related to um, some of the tired stereotypes of the region and its people, including uh, J.D. Vance's uh, uh, popular book, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, I'm just wondering if briefly, if you could say a little bit about uh, what you see as um, um, the ways that uh, Vance misrepresents his subjects. I'm so glad you asked that. Let me give a quick shout out to, just since you brought it up, to the incredible work of Elizabeth Catt, a public historian in and of Central Appalachia, who's done some fantastic work intervening particularly in J.D. Vance's portrayal in Hillbilly Elegy. Um, yeah, in uh, my critique of Hillbilly Elegy, I think extends largely to other authors who have done this, which is, but, which is essentially to take in Hillbilly Elegy, at least, to take what is a perfectly fine personal sort of memoir story of, in this case, J.D. Vance's upbringing, his grandparents, his, you know, his own mother's struggles, etc., and then abstract it into a very bad sociology and, and to take, you know, one family struggle and have it stand in for the struggles of an entire region uh, that in and of itself is bad, but then to essentially abstract those struggles out of any kind of historical or political or economic context and essentially attribute them, as he does, to a kind of inferior cultural and almost like biogenetic makeup of the region, I think is super dangerous. And um, as a little bit of evidence to my point, J.D. Vance was palling around with people like Charles Murray. Uh, a noted eugenicist, right? I mean, somebody who wrote the bell curve. Um, so those, but it, it's also crucial to note that people like J.D. Vance are not really exceptional. He is just extending this 160, 170 year long legacy of writing about Appalachia in these particularly pathological ways. He's extending that into the present, um, which is not to absolve him, right? I mean, he he deserves a lot of scorn and and analysis, um, but he's part of this legacy that I think is really important to study. Right, right. Okay, so um, uh, what is justice reinvestment and how has it played out in Kentucky? So justice reinvestment is a kind of catch-all term that um, gained popularity in the early, two, maybe the early to mid-2000s and early 2010s um, as, a, as what I would call a pretty defensible um, strategy of, of essentially like taking some of the money that had gone towards departments of corrections to build up all of these prisons that you talked about in the intro um, during the era of mass incarceration and redistribute some of that money 
to, you know, parts of what we call the social wage uh, to redistribute it to healthcare and education and, you know, all kinds of other things that make up, you know, the, the good parts of our communities and our lives. Um, unfortunately, justice, and I should say that that happened in a lot of places, at least in terms of departments of corrections looking at their, or states looking at the budgets of departments of corrections and trying to downsize them a little bit or passing some um, often kinds of incremental reforms and in the process, sometimes closing prisons. Unfortunately, in practice, it's been really uneven. Um, And in Kentucky, for example, um, the state passed that kind of legislation in 2011 called House Bill 463, aimed at reducing the budget of the Department of Corrections and reducing Kentucky's prison population. And actually, our prison population has grown since then for a couple of reasons, namely that a couple of reasons that that bill didn't really touch and therefore exacerbated. And so Kentucky now has, despite having passed this legislation 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, Kentucky has one of the fastest growing prison populations, incarcerated populations in the, in the United States. Um, if, it, if it was its own country, would be like the seventh, had the seventh highest rate of incarceration in the world. So justice reinvestment was a decent idea, reformist idea, and like many reformist ideas, has created a lot of its own problems. Right. And the number of coal jobs um, has significantly declined in recent decades in the region that you explore, while the number of jobs in the prison system uh, has increased during this period. Is it fair to say that the prison system has replaced the coal industry in central Appalachia as a primary source of regional employment? I'm so glad you asked that. It it is and it isn't fair to say that. On the one hand, it isn't fair to say that because the number of prison jobs that have come to the region don't come anywhere close to reproducing the number of jobs that were there during the height of the coal boom. I think at the height of coal employment in Kentucky, which was about 1949, 1950, there were more than 70,000 coal jobs in the state. Um, I should note that today there are somewhere around 3,000 coal jobs in the state. It's at its lowest total since the 1890s. But there are something like 6,500, 6,500 prison jobs. So even just to take those numbers gives you a pretty interesting sense of an answer to your question, right? There's now almost double the amount of correctional officer jobs in the state of Kentucky as there are coal jobs, almost double. And yet the number of correctional officer jobs in the state of Kentucky is less than 10% of the number of coal jobs in the state at the at the height of, of the coal industry. So it hasn't come close to replicating what, what coal jobs were there. Having said that, um, pr- those prison jobs, despite, have, despite there being some amount of them, right, they, um, that 
actual amount that's come, right? Those 6,500 do help grant credibility to the narrative of prisons as economic development and as replacing the coal industry that does circulate really heavily. So there are some jobs, not a ton, but the amount that are there and the prisons themselves, those eight that exist in Eastern Kentucky and 16 in the region, do count as like this crucial source of credibility for the people who want to continue building prisons in the region. Right, right. And um, you mentioned uh, this before, but could you tell us a little more about what exactly is mountaintop removal and what is the relationship between this extreme practice and the boom in prison construction in Appalachia? So when most people imagine coal mining, they probably have this idea of a coal miner, probably a man with a pick and a hard hat burrowing deep inside the mountain. And and that form of coal mining still exists in some places. But starting in the 1970s, and particularly picking up steam in the 80s and 90s, was this form of um, what we call surface mining or strip mining called mountaintop removal, which as the name might suggest, literally involves using high-level explosives to detonate the top of mountains in order to access coal seams from above. Um, And it's ruthless. It's ruthless. I mean, it blows off the tops of mountains. It pushes the rubble that it creates, which includes, of course, you know, flora and fauna and trees and all kinds of stuff down into the valleys below and clogs up streams and things like that. It's incredibly disruptive and destructive to huge ecosystems. Something like 500 mountains have been decapitated using mountaintop removal in Appalachia. Um, But what it has also done is created flat land, hundreds and hundreds of acres of flat land on any given mountaintop in a region that's characterized by mountains. And onto that flat land, all kinds of people have projected all kinds of ideas, some better than others. Some people have built housing. Airports have been built in some regions, a golf course here and there. And (laughs) in some places in the coal fields, yeah, in some places in the coal fields, particularly in southwestern Virginia and in eastern Kentucky, prisons have been built on these mountaintop removal sites, um, which is just really striking. Right. To think about the coal being gone, this really violent environmental practice occurring and then constructing a big prison on top. And at least in one place, um, in a place called Martin County, Kentucky, uh, the prison that was built there, one of the more recent prisons to be built in the region, finished in the early 2000s, the most expensive federal prison ever built, actually, um, that prison was built on a mountaintop removal site, but also on a deep mine, one of those older forms of of mining. And um, before the prison was even built, it was sinking into the mine shaft below it, so much so that they needed, the federal government needed to invest tens of millions of more dollars into site remediation uh, to address the, the sinking infrastructure. And it became the most expensive federal prison ever built because of that. All right, so it's possible that because of the damage done to these mountains with the, the 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 mountaintop removal, they, you know, putting aside any um 
moral or or or, or, or um, ideological concerns about the increase in prison uh, uh, um, building, these might just be profoundly unsuitable places to put prisons for for structural reasons. It's true. Yes. Structurally, potentially structurally unsound, environmentally hazardous, right? I mean, subjecting anybody, residents of the region, of course, but also people held against their will in a prison um, to some considerable environmental concerns because of, you know, I mean, because of all of the concerns around coal mining. I should say that even as coal mining has dramatically declined in the region, there's still like lots of cases of of things like black lung disease, often because of mountaintop removal and the kind of circulation in the air of small particles from 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 the practice. So lots of concerns for building them there. Infrastructure concerns, just like you said, environmental concerns, public health concerns, to say nothing of the, you know, negative potential negative economic impact. Right. And what role did the war on poverty play in fostering the process of turning mountaintop removal sites into prisons? Well, there's kind of a long history there. I mean, the war on poverty was, I mean, I think you could say it was sort of launched in eastern Kentucky. It was, you know, the images from the war on poverty, from the launch of the war on poverty occurred in Martin County, Kentucky, the county I was just describing before. Um, And the war on poverty brought, you know, billions of dollars into the region and assisted it in, in many concrete ways, particularly around highway development, other infrastructure development, and it did lift some people out of poverty. But the way that it was, the way that war and poverty funds were disseminated is pretty questionable. Lots of grassroots groups that were sort of best positioned in the most distressed communities were excluded from war and poverty funds. Um, That's one way that you know, that the war on poverty didn't really address these sort of foundational issues. With mountaintop removal specifically, there's this period that I talk about in the book where you see the sort of convergence of a few different moments of like federal legislation, the war on poverty, war on crime legislation, which of course is consequential in various ways to prison growth, but then also a piece of federal regulatory legislation around coal mining. That was the product of efforts for reform, to reform this new emergent process of surface mining. But unfortunately, in the process, created a sort of loophole um, that created mountaintop removal. And so there is this kind of long moment, call it from the early 1960s and the launch of the war on poverty through the late 1970s, of... um, attempts at, uh, you know, federal legislation to address various crises or other issues in all kinds of communities, uh, through which those pieces of legislation, I think, created the current, what I call the current conjuncture, which just means the current moment in the region that's characterized by this dramatic decline of coal, including mountaintop removal um, and the rise of prisons and also jails. Right. And uh, what is the Brushy Mountain development and how does it produce a cultural afterlife of incarceration? 
So the Brushy Mountain development, I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm curious when if listeners wind up reading the book, I'm curious how they how they read the chapter that's about Brushy, because in some ways it's a chapter that um, that doesn't quite align maybe with the with the rest of the story that the book tries to tell. I included it because I happen to think it does. So the Brushy Mountain development is a site of what its founders and I and lots of other people would call prison tourism. It is Brushy Mountain Penitentiary was a very large state prison in Tennessee in operation from the 1890s until 2009. It was the second state prison ever built in Tennessee. After 2009, a group of developers from Tennessee purchased the site and did some infrastructure and kind of like brand development work to create it into a sort of eco craft prison tourism site where they um, manufacture and distill moonshine on the premises. They also um, kind of gesture to certain kinds of like ecotourism and, but primarily host tours of the prison, including ghost tours. What I should add here, which I think is really consequential to answering your question, is that there, that site has an incredibly rich history. It wasn't just the second state prison built in Tennessee. In that same area of Tennessee, this is a, a little uh, west of Knoxville, very much in, the, in a particularly remote part of central, of, of that area of Appalachia. In the 1890s, that area saw a really militant uprising by unionized miners against the convict lease system, this um, system in operation in many states in the South, whereby various industries would lease convicts, many of whom were former, formerly enslaved people or their descendants, would lease them to work on railroads to you know in other places to um pick cotton to obtain turpentine or to work in coal mines and so in tennessee companies were heavily reliant on the con on convict leases unionized miners were opposed to this process on on various grounds and targeted the system eventually in this particular region of Tennessee where Brushy Mountain now stands, going so far as to release convicts and burn them, burn down the stockades in which they were incarcerated. Ultimately, after a year of militant uprising, what came to be known as the Coal Creek War, ending the process of convict leasing in the state of Tennessee. I mean, it was a profound success for multiracial militant politics. But the way that Tennessee as a state sort of tried to resolve that crisis was to build Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary in the same area of Tennessee where the, where the uh, Coal Creek War had just occurred, literally like the next year, two years later, and um, enclose within 9,000 acres or so numerous coal mines where now they just forced forced prisoners to mine coal. And in fact, they incarcerated four people to a cell despite having 
two beds per cell because prisoners would mine coal around the clock. So two people oh per cell. Yeah, two people per cell would be in the mines for 12 hours while the other two were sleeping and eating and whatnot. And then they would switch. So to me, it's just an incredible place, Brushy Mountain that is, that uh, in one kind of location has this uh, super rich history of various sort of what I would call like, to be fancy about it, carceral regimes, right? The, um, the convict lease system, a state penitentiary, and now this prison tourism site that of course is not a prison, but which relies on a particular narration of the prison to sort of sell itself and sell various, sell itself as a commodity, right? The prison tour itself and various commodities that one can take home with them from the gift shop. So to me, it's a really important uh, phenomenon to sort of examine and, and think hard about. Right. And, um, um, how did local civic and political elites try to position position Letcher County, Kentucky, as a site for a new prison? All kinds of ways. Some of which we've talked about already. Um, some, uh, but some of which bear either repeating or elaboration. In some ways, they tried to do it through attaching the needed infrastructure updates and renovations to the promise of United States Penitentiary Letcher. This is the new the new prison that was almost built in the region in 2018-2019. In what I think of as the most consequential and troubling way that they tried to do it was by re let's call it reorganizing or renovating educational curricula at various levels of that of county education to try and prepare a labor force for jobs as correctional officers. So they tried to build out a criminal justice and law track at the local vocational school. There were new criminal justice classes offered at the high school. The county uh, community college partnered with a four-year public university to offer bachelor's degrees and potentially master's degrees with a very specific, intentional eye toward, again, preparing a local labor force for jobs as correctional officers or correctional administrators or whatever in the prison. So there's very concrete very granular, almost mundane ways that county officials were trying to kind of pave the way for the for the prison to come and have some kind of impact. Right, right. And and who are the opponents of the new prison in Letcher? So this is what was like particularly um, inspiring to document and to be a small part of. You know, the, the prison project had really accelerated during the time that I was doing the research, 2015, 2016, 2017. It really looked like it was going to happen. Congress had appropriated $444 million for it. Um, but so a- any federal prison project and lots of other kinds of federal projects have to go through something called the NEPA process. It's just a national, federal, environmental, legal process. Um, 
required by federal environmental law. And as USP Letcher began going through this NEPA process, which requires an environmental impact study and requires public approval and public input, a sort of nascent coalition of folks who were opposed to USP Letcher began to come together. And it included considerable local people from Letcher County, including primarily young people who were sort of politicized around these issues because of Black Lives Matter, but also because of an incredible media arts organization based in Letcher County that produces a radio show that re- called Calls from Home that reaches into seven prisons within the listening range. So it included a lot of people already sort of politicized around these issues and very concerned about the prison. It included local landowners whose land was proposed to be annexed to to build, to site USP Letcher on. And then it also included people from outside of the county. It included environmental activists and movement attorneys. It included people in prison uh, in places around the country concerned about being moved within the federal prison system to Eastern Kentucky. So it was this pretty incredible broad coalition of people that came together using, you know, different kinds of strategies to try and slow down or stop or intervene in what seemed to be in an, an inexorable push toward construction. Right. What, what were um, some of the strategies that the opponents of the, the new Letcher prison employed? So some of the strategies included um, writing letters and comments during the environmental impact study, challenging the Bureau of Prisons on their own data, saying you're not accounting for something like the Indiana bat, you know, a potentially uh, a species that might be impacted by the construction of the prison. You're not accounting for a, a huge stand of old growth forest. You're not accounting for a local um, uh, ra- a, a local person whose business is raptor rehabilitation, whose birds will be directly impacted, right? So some of it was challenging them on, on environmental grounds in the pages of the environmental impact study. Excuse me. Some of it was also in those pages challenging them on their claims of economic development, so much so that the Bureau of Prisons actually had to... Um, had to go back and and admit that their promises of economic development were highly inflated because of some of the work of sociologists and others who wrote in to call them on it. But lots of work occurred outside of the pages of the environmental impact study and outside of the official process, particularly the work of a group called the Letcher Governance Project, comprised of many of those young organizers I mentioned before, politicized through the radio show, who just did a lot of work with other social movement workers, organizers in the broad Southern and Appalachian region to try and understand the prison as related to other forms of struggles against policing and prisons, and who did a lot of work locally to try and intervene in the narrative of prison boosters 
um, who are trying to sell the prison as the most kind of reliable form of, of economic development. Probably their most successful tactic included was the um, development and circulation of a hashtag called R444 million, which generated lots of responses on social media and in the pages of the environmental impact study and elsewhere of people saying, essentially saying, you know what? We're going to claim this money. We need this kind of investment in our region. We desperately need jobs and stability, but we're going to disavow this prison for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is that it lacks any kind of really good evidence that it's going to do what you say it's going to do. And it would be trying to employ us and our neighbors um, in a way that would, of course, subject other poor people to uh, you know, to forms of state violence. So the Letcher Governance Project really uh, expressed all of that very explicitly. And I think we're consequential in disrupting some of the sort of quote unquote common sense of prisons as economic development. Right. And um, uh, okay, last question. Uh, how has the COVID pandemic and the movement against the recent movement against police violence, including the call uh, to defund the police, impacted Appalachian prisons? Well, in a couple ways. Um, even as Kentucky, the Kentucky governor was able to get some folks out of prison during COVID because COVID, of course, uh, dramatically impacted people who were incarcerated in, you know, an enclosed space. Um, even as the governor was able to get some folks out at the same time, because Kentucky prisons are so overpopulated, he also uh, reopened a decommissioned prison in Eastern Kentucky to house, you know, overflow state prisoners. This was a private prison that had been decommissioned in 2012 that the state reopened in 2019, which as an aside is interesting for us to consider in light of the defeat of USP Letcher, because that defeat should be celebrated. It was a historic defeat. And yet you see what we call the sort of carceral state or mass incarceration shift even across scales. Like that was a federal prison that was defeated and then just a year later, actually not even a year later, months later, the state reopened a different prison, a different prison in the region, right? Just an hour away or so. So it's impacted it uh, in that way, in that there is still growth. The, the area is still, the region is still hugely investing in jail infrastructure. That's a, kind of a different conversation, but is still deeply related to the decline of the coal industry. Um, so this growth has not abated just because there's a pandemic and just because the pandemic affects people in horrific ways who are locked up. Um, I would also say that I think folks in the region recognize that the call to defund the police emanating from all over the United States and the globe um, is, not, is not a distinct struggle from the call to defeat prisons in central Appalachia or rural communities, right? It's a, it's a, just a different front of the same sort of fight. And in fact, it bears mentioning that 
there's a lot of really good recent work out there, particularly from places like the Prison Policy Initiative and the Vera Institute of Justice's In Our Backyards Initiative that shows that some of the um, places that are being subjected to higher and some of the highest rates of incarceration are rural communities. That's true where you are in New Jersey and in New York in particular, as a recent report just released yesterday shows, and it's true where I am in Kentucky. And so the fight against defunding the police or defeating a prison is also a fight that has to occur on the terrain of a place like rural Eastern Kentucky. Right. Um, Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. I mean, thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.